When Carlos Beltran was a young man, he was what is known as a five-tool player. That meant he could do everything well. Run, throw, field, hit for average, and hit for power. But even for someone as physically gifted as he was, baseball success isn't a matter of talent alone. The Kansas City Royals drafted Beltran from Puerto Rico in 1995, when he was 18. When he arrived on the mainland United States, he often couldn't follow his coach's instructions, because he didn't speak a word of English. During practice, he had to resort to mimicking what other players were doing. He told me about it in a February 2018 interview I recorded with my iPhone in an unfortunately echoey room. What would you do? Like, I read that you would, uh, like, stand at the end of line for yes. every drill. For example, spring training, where, yeah. you, where you get a lot of people. You know, I used to be, be in the back of the outfielders and watch what the guys were doing. Because you, you couldn't understand the coach. I couldn't understand the coach spraying, like, the drills in the outfield, but... I was like, okay, let me watch this guy, see how he does it, and try to... It must be so... I mean, you're thinking about so much else besides what you're supposed to be focusing. His English improved, and so did his play. In 1999, he was the American League Rookie of the Year. Back goes Griffey. Gone! Carlos Beltran. Home run number 22. Runs batted in, 102 and 103. The next season, though, he struggled and lost his job as the Royals' starting center fielder. Opposing pitchers had figured him out. This was when he began to understand the power of studying video to improve his performance. Beltran started spending a lot of time in the Royals' video room to try to fix flaws in his swing. He soon discovered that all his watching, rewinding, and rewatching of tape could be helpful in other ways. I was just studying myself, my swing. But at the same time, you know, and when you're watching the picture or you're watching your swings, you know, they always put the clip of the picture. So, yeah. so I got to watch the picture and, okay, let me see. Oh, man, he looked like he did something different on the curveball. When a pitcher behaves differently as he's preparing to throw one type of pitch as opposed to another, it's called tipping. It's like a poker tell. Any flinch, any gesture, any change in the way a pitcher holds his glove, it might mean something. A batter who can figure out a pattern in this behavior can give himself a distinct advantage. And it's perfectly legal. One of the first pitchers Beltran identified as tipping was named Bartolo Colon, the hard-throwing ace of the Cleveland Indians. Colon just rears back and fires a 96-mile-an-hour heater past David DeLuccia for the first out of the game. Bartolo used to do something with uh, his motion. His motion on the fastball was slower, and his motion on the breaking pitch was faster. So every time I got to see him him hurry up with with his motion, you know, I knew that he was going to throw me off speed. And every time he went slow, it was going to be hard, fastball. Beltran started lighting Cologne up. He was no longer just a player with five tools, but also a sixth, savvy. In June of 2004, Beltran was traded to the Astros. This was a different era in the team's history, long before Jeff Luno arrived and long before I'd written a word about them. Beltran thrived in Houston, and during the 2004 playoffs, he seemed to become supernatural. It's gone! 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 Carlos Beltran has matched Barry Bonds' eight home runs in the postseason, and more importantly, the Astros lead now. 
But even that wasn't enough for the Astros. They lost Game 7 of the National League Championship Series to the Cardinals, missing the World Series yet again. On the ground, a second. And for the first time since 1987, the St. Louis Cardinals are going to the Beltran's first run with the Astros lasted just four months and ended immediately after that NLCS loss. He signed a seven-year contract with the New York Mets worth $119 million. Eventually, age started to sap his physical gifts, but his savvy only grew. By the end of the 2016 season, more than a decade after his first stint in Houston, Beltran was about to turn 40, making him the second oldest position player in the majors. By then, the Astros had drastically improved under Jeff Luno, but Luno felt like they were still missing something. We had a young team. It was uh, a great, fun team. And we really thought if we could bring in the right type of veteran player who has playoff experience and who can mentor our young players that were going to be stars, but they weren't quite stars yet, and we knew we had a good team. We felt like this team is ready to win. Luno had rebuilt the Astros by investing in and developing young players like Alex Bregman and Carlos Correa and George Springer. But that meant that he'd gotten rid of the veterans, experienced players who could provide even the most data-driven club with an unquantifiable X-factor that could put it over the top. Now it was time to add one, and Luno knew just the guy. He signed Carlos Beltran and made him his highest-paid player, promising him $16 million for 2017. Luna wanted Beltran for his power, but also for other reasons. His leadership, which came from having experienced everything there was to experience in baseball, with the exception of a World Series ring. The gravitas that someone like him could command in the clubhouse. The knowledge he could pass along to younger teammates who would listen to someone like him. It would turn out that part of Beltran's knowledge came from his understanding of the power of studying opponents and how to prepare to face pitchers who were throwing far harder than they used to. There's no reacting in baseball anymore. Like Back in the days, like you face a lot of guys that threw 88, 90, yeah. 91. And those guys, you could you have more time to see them. Right. But 95, 96, 97, that's, that's fast. So you need to have a plan, or you need to know what, that's, what that guy is doing in order for you to give yeah. yourself a chance. You need to know what that guy is doing in order for you to give yourself a chance. Video resources for ball clubs had proliferated and improved since the days when Beltran was rewinding VHS tapes with the Royals. And they could, quite easily, be used for far more than simply determining whether an opposing pitcher was tipping his pitches. I'm Ben Ryder, and this is The Edge. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They... 
got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. For as long as anyone can remember, baseball players and coaches have used coded, nonverbal signs to communicate, perhaps a thousand or more signals in any given game. And for almost as long, opponents have tried to decipher them. Major League Baseball's lengthy official rulebook does not ban sign-stealing. Actually, it never has. But what the sport has periodically tried to discourage is the use of devices to steal signs. Any foreign object or technology that enables a player or team to do it via methods beyond their own skill or intelligence. No one in the history of baseball had ever been punished for stealing signs, until very recently. In practice, the line between proper and improper sign-stealing, the line between gamesmanship and cheating, was always primarily about ethics and norms, and people have been crossing it throughout the history of the game. The the axiom, which I heard many times, if you're not stealing, you're not trying. That's Paul Dixon, the author of The Hidden Language of Baseball. Dixon, who's 80 years old, found that the first recorded instance of someone trying to steal signs goes all the way back to 1876, the very first year of the National League. There was a a shack that had been built hanging from a telegraph pole overlooking the stadium in Hartford. And they were stealing the signs from there and getting them somehow down to the uh, guys on the field, and they were taking it from there. Sign stealing is baked into baseball. In fact, one of the game's most recognizable features is believed to have developed as a direct result of clubs' attempts to thwart sign-stealing. Catchers used to bend over to receive pitches, but that made it too easy for the opposition to see the finger sequences the catchers were flashing between their legs. That's why catchers started squatting instead. But squatting wasn't enough, and what followed was a kind of arms race. One September day in 1900, a shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds named Tommy Corcoran noticed that when the Philadelphia Phillies played at home, their third base coach always put his foot in a specific spot just before a pitch was coming in. Corcoran ran over to third base to investigate. He goes tearing across the field and starts kicking with his foot, digging up the dirt, and dirt is flying everywhere, and he comes with this little box, and in the box is a buzzer. As Corcoran discovered, there was a very specific reason why the Phillies' third base coach always stood on exactly the same patch of dirt. The buzzing box was buried just beneath it. And the buzzer is taking a telegraphed signal and buzzing, but it's not loud enough to be heard, but he could feel it at the bottom of his foot. It turned out that the coach was receiving a modified Morse code from a second-string catcher, Morgan Murphy. Murphy would train his binoculars through a peephole in the outfield fence, then decipher the opponent's signs and transmit them to the coach's foot. One dash for a fastball, two for a curve, and three for a changeup. Murphy was quickly nicknamed the Thomas Edison of baseball. Over the decades, sign-stealing became a game within the game. It was an open secret that lots of people indulged in. From a beloved A's bat boy who could allegedly see beneath a squatting catcher's knee because he was hunchbacked, all the way to the game's greats. Ty Cobb, Hank Greenberg, Bob Feller, Rogers Hornby, Duke Snyder, Leo DeRocher, on and on and on. 
What Ralph Kiner used to say was the fault is not with people stealing the signs, but with people giving them. The people stealing them, though, kept finding more exotic aids to help them do it. In the late 1930s, the Cleveland Indians' rotation was topped by a young phenom. There he is, folks, Bobby Fellow, the boy pitching sensation of the big leagues who set the new American League record of 17 strikeouts, and he was only 17 years old at the time. Amazing, isn't it? On the day of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, when he was 23, Bob Feller suspended his career to enlist in the Navy. When he returned three years later, he brought a new tool with him. He had brought back a telescope, a two and a half foot long telescope from the ship he had served on in the, in the South Pacific in World War II. Feller or another Indians pitcher, Bob Lemon, would sit in the scoreboard in center field and train the telescope on home plate. You could see the dirt under the catcher's fingernails, said Lemon, who, like Feller, was a future Hall of Famer. They would relay each pitch to the groundskeeper, who would in turn alert the batter at home plate through a hole in the scoreboard. A face peering out of the hole might indicate fastball, while an arm might mean a curve. Feller saw no problem with it. Later, he said, hey, all's fair in love and war, and when you're trying to win a pennant. Which the Indians did, for the second and, sorry Cleveland, most recent time in their history. And the 1948 World Series is all over. The Cleveland Indians win a 4-3 triumph over the Boston Braves in the final game to take the series four games to two. Eleven years later, in 1959, a national audience learned that there was now an even better technology than a telescope with which to steal signs. NBC had just invested in a camera with an 80-inch Bushnell's Spacemaster telephoto lens, and they unveiled it for a Game of the Week broadcast. Mel Allen, Bill Rizzuto, Red Barber, and I are all set to send it your way. The broadcasters realized that they can now clearly see the catcher's signs and told the audience what was coming before each pitch. Uh, one of the people who happened to be watching the game that day was the commissioner, who was Ford Frick at the time, and he thought it was a horrible idea. He saw that he immediately went to NBC to agree not to use the camera again ever. If the guys in the booth could pick it up, then the dugout could have the TV on. Sign stealing had become so widespread that in 1961, the Hall of Fame second baseman Rogers Hornsby published an article in True Magazine headlined, You've Got to Cheat to Win in Baseball. And television made it potentially easier than ever. So the league started making noise about putting a stop to it. That year, Commissioner Frick said that he would overturn a game's result if it was proven that the winning team had used mechanical means, anything other than their eyes, to steal signs. Frick never actually acted on his threat, but he did help make the practice less socially acceptable. In 1965, the great manager Leo DeRocher had signed on as a broadcaster himself. He noticed that Vice President Hubert Humphrey was in attendance at a Washington Senators game. So DeRocher, being a showman, invites the Vice President of the United States to come up to the booth. And he says, Mr. Vice President, let's see if we can steal some signs. And Humphrey becomes very, very nervous and says things like, I'm not sure this is ethical. Are we, are we allowed to do this? Is, this? is this permissible? And of course, DeRocher just bulls with it. He's like, oh, that's it's part of the game, part of the game. And then DeRocher starts calling these signals. Sign stealing was more than a strategy. It was a fine art, and its masters were handsomely rewarded. One was a former statistics major named Joe Nosek. 
Nasik hit three home runs total in six seasons as a player in the 1960s. But then he began a career as a major league coach. He lasted 30 years, in large part because of his special skill. He was known far and wide as sort of the dean and the emperor of science dealers. And it has always been regarded as one of the assets you would want to have on a ball club was a really good science dealer. Here's Joe Nosick, the dean of sign stealing, now 79 years old. You know, everybody's looking for an edge in this game, and uh, and it's been going on since uh, the game started, I'm sure. Every individual has their own opinion, but uh, I have no guilt feelings for anything I ever did. Well, look, I mean, if you suspected other teams were stealing your signs, what would you do? I'd give them my pat answer, change your darn signs. While there was still no official rule against sign-stealing, the league's disapproval of it pushed it underground, with only occasional flare-ups. One involved Bernie Brewer, the Milwaukee mascot. Come see what the Brewers are doing. Come on and cheer a superstar. In 1973, the mascot was accused of relaying stolen signs from his chalet high in the Brewers' stadium center field bleachers. The Texas Rangers alleged that Bernie Brewer was clapping every time a breaking pitch was coming. The umpire kicked a man with binoculars out of the chalet and made the mascot take off his white gloves, which were visible from home plate. There were other rumors over the next decades, involving spies in the stands and electronic eavesdropping and even closed-circuit televisions, rumors which were often buried in the sports pages if they were covered at all. But sign-stealing became national news again in 2001 for something that had happened a half a century earlier. It was revealed that one of the most famous moments in baseball history, one of the most famous moments in American history, wasn't quite what it had seemed. This was the shot heard round the world. The ninth-inning home run that Bobby Thompson of the New York Giants hit off of the Brooklyn Dodgers' Ralph Branca in 1951. It ended baseball's first-ever nationally televised game. Sports Illustrated would name it the second-greatest sports moment of the 20th century. And yet, 50 years later, a Wall Street Journal reporter named Joshua Harris Prager found that the Giants had someone with a telescope beyond center field who would transmit the opposing catcher's signs to a modified telephone in the bullpen. One buzz on the phone meant a fastball was coming. Two meant an off-speed pitch. Players there would then relay the pitch to the batter at the plate, including quite possibly to Bobby Thompson on that fateful swing. Thompson's teammate, Sal Evars, suggested as much in a 2001 documentary. I'm up there, and I'm giving the signs. Bobby knew what was coming. Ahead of opening day of 2000, the league issued a memo to its teams, acknowledging the destabilizing potential of a new technology, cell phones, to help players steal signs. With that, the use of cell phones was banned during games, along with all electronic communications. As the memo specified, such equipment may not be used for the purpose of stealing signs or conveying information designed to give a club an advantage. For a long time, no one was punished for violating that rule. In fact, and I want to emphasize this, as of 2017, no one in the history of baseball had ever been punished in any official way for stealing signs at all. 
the line between legal sign stealing and illegal sign stealing that involved the use of technology remained, in practice, an ethical one. And by the time Carlos Beltran returned to the Astros in 2017, there was a new tool flowing into ballparks. One that was more sophisticated than a telescope or an 80-inch Bushnell lens, or even cell phones. High-definition video feeds. And the league kept approving them, even introducing them, with rules that were easy to ignore because they were hardly ever enforced. These rules were, as Paul Dixon says, no hindrance at all to a player who knew what he was doing. A really smart guy can do an awful lot of damage being a smart guy. Major League Baseball brought the snake into the Garden of Eden and then were surprised when the players took a bite of the apple. Carlos Beltran changed the Astros' clubhouse from the day he arrived at spring training in February of 2017, as Jeff Luno told me. So you were happy with everything that he he was doing, at least everything you knew about that he was doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was talkative. He was a leader. All of a sudden, our players were spending a lot more time looking at video, talking about baseball. In the lunchroom, he talked about baseball. I mean, it was he was inspiring people to you know, to do more, to to work harder, to get more out of their talent. This is a guy that people wanted to follow. Beltran didn't want to be intimidating and unapproachable, as some other rich, grizzled vets might be. He never forgot how lost and alone he'd felt as a young player, unable to communicate in the clubhouse and struggling on the field. Here's Beltran talking to me in 2018. My way of living is that you have to use uh, your time uh, to try to do things for the people that come in after you. Beltran visited with each of his new teammates, not just the stars like Carlos Correa and Jose Altuve and George Springer, but also the scrubs who were unlikely to make the opening day roster. This was exactly the dynamic and influence that Luno had been hoping for. I see these guys, you know, like grinding and you know, working out, and I just need to take the approach and say, man, uh, if there's anything do you think I could help you, don't hesitate. Don't be shy. Yeah. I don't want to hear that's an excuse. Come talk to me. If you sit down next to me and you ask me a question, I will be more than happy to help you. So they understand that I'm on their side. They understand that I don't have a wall. They understand that I'm honest about it. It wasn't just to be nice. Better team chemistry meant better communication, and better communication meant more winning. Julia Morales, then in her fifth season as the on-field reporter for the Astros' regional TV broadcasts, remembers a typical clubhouse scene from 2017. Carlos Beltran was sitting in front of his locker, and he had a group around him sitting basically in Indian style. So it, it almost felt like he was talking to a group of students, and just holding court. It never felt like there was this side of the room or that side of the room. It just felt like one cohesive unit. And so we knew it was going to be something special. I mean, you know, even if I didn't think it was going to be a World Series championship at the end of it, I mean, we just knew it was going to be one heck of a ride. As the season progressed, age finally caught up with Carlos Beltran. Soon he was just a part-time designated hitter and a full-time mentor. He had more time, even during games, to devote himself to the skill he'd learned as a young player in Kansas City 
analyzing video. But now he had digitized, instantly searchable footage to help him figure out things, like whether opponents were tipping their pitches. Now we have all these resources. Yeah. We'll have all these resources. So if you see a guy tipping, I'm like, this guy doesn't, this guy don't care. I mean, look at the video, my friend. You know, look, look at yourself. Like, you know, yeah. the league is seeing you, so you better make adjustment to that. There's a reason why you're hearing so much of this iPhone recording I made of the interview I did with Beltran in his New York apartment building in 2018. That was the last time I talked to him. Two years later, the story about him changed dramatically when he was outed as not only a participant in the Astros' trash can banging, sign stealing scheme, but its ringleader. Beltran had his hands in every cookie jar in America, but he, of course, now is on the back pages of the New York tabloids. You know, as Don Corleone there is sort of a puppeteer, the mastermind. In February of 2020, I asked Beltran's rep for a follow-up interview for this podcast. I kept asking for the next five months until I finally got an answer. Beltran wasn't ready to talk. But based on everything I've learned about Carlos Beltran and everything he told me, I can connect the dots as to how someone like him emerged as a central figure in the scandal that retroactively tarnished what had seemed like a gleaming valedictory season in Houston. Do the Astros provide you with analytical tools that you had never seen before in any of your stops? Let me tell you something. I, in my career, I play without that. I play most, most of my career. Last three or four years, I got to see closely like all the information that these people can bring yeah. to you. By 2017, Major League Baseball clubhouses like the Astros were overflowing with lightly regulated video resources. For years, hitters had been able to review footage of their at-bats in the clubhouse during games to see what they'd done right or wrong. The league permitted clubs to set up networks of cameras in their home ballparks for training and scouting purposes. 2014 brought another video stream, the introduction of the league's replay review system, Each club was allowed an official, often stationed near the dugout. That official had access to multiple camera angles to help the manager decide whether to immediately challenge an umpire's call. Joe Torrey, the legendary manager who had gone to work in the commissioner's office, talked about the new system in a 2014 interview. Was there some concern going into this that that maybe this is pushing tradition a little bit too much? We haven't changed a whole lot in baseball over the years because it's a pretty darn good game. Mm-hmm. We think technology is at a point where uh, we can we can install this, we can institute replay, and not have it affect the rhythm of the game. As we've heard, savvy players had known forever that technology could help steal and transmit signs. The Phillies of 1900 even knew it, with their binoculars and their buried buzzer. The technology Carlos Beltran had at his disposal would have horrified Ford Frick, the commissioner who once banned the 80-inch Bushnell lens and who imagined a bleak future in which dugouts were filled with television sets. Beltran was also the unquestioned leader of a very young Astros clubhouse, one whose players had already been taught that their organization was exceptional that their team did things differently and exploited edges that others didn't or wouldn't. 
So when Beltran and Alex Cora, the Astros bench coach, led the team to the newest version of baseball's age-old dark art, the scheme that involved taking a live video feed from a camera the league allowed for training purposes and rerouting it to a screen behind the dugout next to a trash can, you can imagine the Astros' younger players going along with it, even embracing it. And you can also imagine why no objector, not even the team's manager, A.J. Hinch, felt strong enough to stop it. Maybe Beltran himself didn't understand the new line his team was crossing. Similar to how Chris Correa, the Cardinals executive who went to prison for hacking the Astros' database, didn't see his own actions clearly until it was far too late. Obviously, the Astros were all grown men, and they knew what they were doing was wrong. That's why they kept it a secret. But when you consider the influence Beltran wielded in the clubhouse, as well as sign-stealing's long history in their sport, you can start to understand how it happened. There was another factor at play, too. Paranoia. Beltran and the Astros players had good reason to believe that other teams were exploiting video to steal signs. It wasn't even hard to do. And if the Astros didn't do it themselves, wouldn't they be falling behind? That line of thinking was seemingly validated in September of 2017, when the commissioner's office fined the Red Sox for using smartwatches to relay stolen signs from the replay room to the dugout, to runners at second, and then to batters at the plate. The Boston Red Sox punished for cheating against the New York Yankees. Boston, I'm just the messenger here tonight. Major League Baseball concluding the Sox did use an Apple Watch to relay stolen Yankee signals to players. As you know, stealing signals, not illegal, but using electronic devices to do so apparently is. When the Red Sox scheme had first been revealed, team president Dave Dombrowski was unapologetic. He kind of shrugged the whole thing off. Do I think sign stealing is wrong? No, I don't. I guess it depends how you do it, but I, um, it's an edge. People are trying to win however they can. It's an edge that they try to gain. And sometimes, uh, you know, your sophistication of signs can make a difference. So no, I've never felt that it's wrong. But this way, I never was brought up that it was wrong. No one was individually punished for the smartwatch controversy in Boston, just the team. But Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred would issue a memo to all clubs warning them that anyone who did something similar to the Red Sox would be dealt with much more severely from then on. Manfred would also find the team that had turned in the Red Sox, the Yankees, for improper use of their replay room phone. The commissioner had this to say. We actually do not have a rule against sign stealing, and it has been a part of the game for a very, very long time. Um, to the extent that there was a violation of a rule here, um, it was a violation by one or the other that involved the use of electronic equipment. It's the electronic. The Red Sox had tried one version of modern sign stealing, but the Astros were the Astros, so that meant they'd do it better. They wouldn't stop at sending signs to runners at second. Actually, as the Red Sox misdeeds came to light near the end of the 2017 season, the Astros had already gone much further than that. In late October of 2017, the Astros reached the World Series that Carlos Beltran had always longed for. They'd play against a Dodgers team that was also not just talented but smart and had its own seasoned leader, Chase Utley. Um, I want to ask about your view of Carlos Beltran in particular back in 2017. 
kind of seemed like the Astros version of you. Right. The old guy? Well, I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like the, uh, the Yeah, yeah. Backstage, old guy, veteran, there to help the younger guys kind of get get through it, troubleshoot certain situations. And, you know, I took pride in doing that with the Dodgers. Like Beltron, Utley was a five-tool superstar during his prime as a second baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. In 2010, Utley's Phillies had been accused of illegal sign-stealing themselves when their bullpen coach, Mick Billmeyer, was caught focusing a pair of binoculars towards home plate. But Billmeyer had an explanation. Mick was a single guy, and he used his binoculars to kind of like, you know, check stuff out. Um, so he was checking out ladies, essentially? Well, he was, Yes. <laughs> Utley was 38 by the time the Dodgers met the Astros in the 2017 World Series. Like Beltron, he was perhaps most valuable for the things he was doing off the field. Utley also spent a lot of time in the video room, and he fully understood the competitive advantage that the game's new video resources could provide. Sometimes, while studying an upcoming opponent, Utley would realize that he'd cracked their favorite sign patterns— Potentially useful information if the Dodgers got a runner on second who could see what the catcher was signaling. Well, now I, I can possibly go into that game thing. okay, Ben uses first sign. And maybe you are using first sign or maybe you're not. But if you are, then I've done enough homework to feel comfortable relaying that pitch to the hitter. If there's any advantage you can gain from doing homework, it's an advantage. I don't think there's anything illegal about doing homework. There's a key ethical point that Utley's making here. Deciphering an opponent's past signs and using that knowledge on the field if you saw them doing something similar? That was smart preparation. But using technology to crack signs during a game? That was cheating. With so much live video around, wasn't Utley tempted to cross that line? I guess what I'm saying is, like, did this possibility occur to you? No, it didn't. <laughs> no, because it's not, it just wasn't, it wasn't right. As the 2017 World Series approached, though, Utley began hearing rumors that the Astros may have been doing something beyond pregame preparation. If you hear there's something fishy from one person, okay, that's one thing. But when you when you hear it from a multiple different areas, that's a little concerning. So that's when I did my homework. Utley camped out in the Dodgers' video room, studying as many of the Astros' recent at-bats as he could, trying to figure it out. Hours of tape. I'm watching hours. I'm watching all their hitters. I mean, I'm watching everything just to see if there are any red flags. And when I, the more I dug on on the Astros, uh, it just seemed like they obviously had very talented players, but it seemed like they were just doing something that other teams weren't. I felt like something was up. Utley didn't detect anything audible, like, say, loud bangs. The video he reviewed actually didn't have sound. But what made him suspicious was the nature of the Astros at bats. You know, some of the breaking pitches they were able to lay off of and not really flinching at. You know, that happens once or twice throughout the game. Okay, it's just it's just happenstance. But when it happens over and over again with multiple hitters, it seemed like they were either really good at picking up tips or somebody was helping them out. The Dodgers so deeply valued Utley's expertise and leadership that they invited him to participate in basically every strategy meeting they had. And Utley was wary of making his team's pitchers overly paranoid, especially the young ones, 
it was hard enough to pitch in the World Series without having something extra to worry about. So he delivered his advice gently. It was the same thing that the dean of sign-stealing Joe Nosek would have said, the same thing any leader would have said as far as how to combat suspicions of espionage. Hey guys, we're obviously playing in the World Series. It's time to kind of change up our sign sequences. I think it's important to maybe use multiple signs when nobody's on base just to like rule out anything. Utley spent much of the series on the bench trying to catch the Astros cheating. You're looking in the dugout, you're looking in their first base coaches, you're looking in the outfield, you're looking in their bullpen, you're like looking for anything that could be a clue what they're doing. And I didn't, at the time, I wasn't able to come up with any one particular thing that I thought was fishy during the World Series. That is driven into left center. One of the more unexpected things the Astros did in the series was to absolutely demolish the Dodgers' usually dominant starting pitcher, Yu Darvish. In Game 3, Houston knocked Darvish out in the second inning. And that's going to be it for Darvish, because he cannot command that pitch this inning, and the Astros have made a pain. Beltran would tell me a few months later that he'd figured out that Darvish was tipping his pitches. Darvish's wrist moved differently before he was going to throw a fastball versus an off-speed pitch. At the time, Utley wondered if something like that might be happening to his teammate. Maybe he's giving some type of tell. You know, honing in on that game, the footage that we had on it wasn't great to pick up, you know, everything. Me and a, and a few other guys kind of watched some video on him and decided maybe he was doing something. It's not, we're not 100% sure, but going into game seven, let's make an adjustment on what, what he typically does to see if that is helpful. Beltran told me that they'd noticed Darvish had minimized his tipping during game seven, but it didn't matter. Houston here in the second. And now with three runs in, that's going to be it for Darvish. For the second time, he can't go two full innings in a start. The Astros would win that game and the series. And Utley still can't say with certainty that the Astros didn't deserve their championship. I don't know if they were stealing signs in the World Series. I have no clue, and only only they know, and that information may never may never come out. So stealing it from us, not necessarily. I think I think during the course of the regular season against some of their teams in their league, um, you know, they rubbed a lot of people the wrong way with their actions. But I can't say definitively that they did that in the World Series. Immediately after Game 7, Beltran described his role to Fox's dugout reporter, Ken Rosenthal. And for me, being a veteran guy, being able to be in this league for such a long time, uh, I just wanted to contribute to their career and, you know, I always uh, try to bring them information that they could use. What are your emotions right now? I remember talking to Carlos Beltran down on the field at Dodger Stadium after Game 7. It was his first title and it seemed a magical culmination of everything he believed in. Skill, chemistry, savvy. He seemed dazed. He held his young son in his arms, and the boy kept tugging at his ear. It took me 20 years to get to this position, Beltran said. It's a blessing. Now I could go either way. In reality, he already knew that he was retiring. His work was done. 
and his reputation was so spotless that he was already being viewed as a future manager. You know, I feel like I accomplished almost everything in baseball. I went through ups, I went through down, I went through injuries, I went to All-Star again, I went to Glove, I went to the Slover, I went to the Series. Like, it was time for me to yeah. move on. And the good thing is that I, I felt in my heart that I didn't, I, I left everything. You had a good ending. That's how everyone viewed what Carlos Beltran had accomplished in baseball. At least for a while. Next week on The Edge. What it revealed to me was that they were not interested in finding out if something wrong was going on. (laughs) They were not interested in facts that dissented with their plan. The Edge is presented by Prologue Projects in partnership with Cadence 13. The show is produced by Sam Lee and me, Ben Ryder, with editorial support from Madeline Kaplan and Ula Kulpa. Our executive producers are Leon Nafok, Andrew Parsons, Chris Corcoran, and Stephen Fisher. Our scores provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Additional music by Billy Libby. Our theme song is by Andy Christens. Our credit music this week is Hey Hey Astros by Chance McLean and Frank Burlington. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks. Fact-checking by Francis Carr. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.